I'm going to start right off with scripture. I'm going to read from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. It says, Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus the name that is above every name, the one to whom every knee will bow, Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. There is power in his name. There are songs written about that. There is power in his name. During this series, we talk a lot about the meaning behind a name. And as Craig mentioned to us last week, a new parent often considers what they will name their child months, even years before their children are born, right? Well, I'm so grateful that the first names given to our twin girls didn't stick, baby A, baby B, right? How many mul- parents of multiples out there, right? That's what they call our children. Anyone, um, anyone with multiples would know, it, would know that, but knowing that baby A and baby B probably wasn't the best choice for our kids, we thought long and hard about their names. In the end, we chose names um, with a family history, names that would have meaning for us and hopefully meaning for them um, as they go along in their own future. The fascination with names reflects the fact that names do carry weight. The name of Jesus carries weight. Now, biblical names signified family origin, signified purpose, characteristics, or circumstances at any given time. And so this study in the names of God teaches us all these same things about our God. His origin, alpha and omega, first and last. His purpose, creator, savior, Lord. His character, righteous, just, all-knowing, all-powerful. So many things, right? And in the midst of every single circumstance, valley and mountaintop, struggle and joy, he remains true and it is he who remains faithful in our lives. And our all-knowing, all-powerful, Ever-present God knows our name. I love that. He knows your name. And if God knows me by name, then God knows my story. He knows my heritage, my origin, my beginning. And he knows my end as well. And knowing me by name means that he knows the very core of who I am, the very core of who you are, because our name differentiates us, if you will, from those around us. My name is different from yours. And when God called his people by name, he determined right from the very beginning to set his people apart. They would be a nation that would be set apart from other nations. So God called Abraham out of his home to travel to an unknown territory, the promised land, where his descendants would outnumber the stars. I wonder what through his mind, right? 
And then Abraham bore Isaac. And then Isaac bore Jacob, whose name would be changed to Israel. And Israel would go on to bear 12 sons who would become the nation of God's people, a nation that would outnumber the stars, just as he promised. Listen to Isaiah 43, 1. He says, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. God calls his people by name, and he set his people apart into that great nation. And so as we continue to learn through this series, his name series, God uses different names throughout scripture to describe himself, to teach us about his origin, to teach us about his purpose and his plan and his nature. And as we're going to learn today to teach us about hope. I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to just give you a glimpse of what I have learned about the name of God that we are looking at today. And this is the interesting part. It's only found in one passage throughout all of scripture, but does that make it less important? No. In fact, I think it's so very, very important in our lives. It's found in Ezekiel 48, 35, and it is Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. So in order to grasp the true significance of this passage and this name for God, we need to review some of the history behind Ezekiel's writings. But first, how many have read Ezekiel? Okay. First, let's talk a little bit about the Old Testament prophet. What comes to mind when you think of prophets? A little bit of confusion, maybe. That's what comes to my mind sometimes. Strange, hard to understand. Ezekiel himself was a prophet in a very tumultuous time in the history of God's people. And if you've ever read that book of Ezekiel, you may very well have thought of this prophet as a man dressed in very strange clothes, who did very strange things, who said very strange words, and whose visions seemed very far-fetched, even bizarre at times. Lots of wheels, right? Look it up. You'll know what I mean. Because Ezekiel writes in writes of ways that he served God, right? but that are sometimes hard for us to begin to grasp and understand. But here's the truth about Ezekiel, and even about the other prophets of the Old Testament. Ezekiel was simply a man. He was a man who God prepared for a very special ministry. He was a man called to bring the divine word of God to a people who desperately needed to hear it, whether they recognized that desperation or not at the time. He was a man who fully served God. He was a man who saw God's will for his people, and then he grieved deeply as those people fell so far short again and again and again. Ezekiel possessed very strong convictions about God's truth, and he longed with all of his being, I believe that, with all that he had, or otherwise he wouldn't have done some of the things that God called him to do. He longed for the day when those in his midst would hold dear to that same truth, the same truth about our God, the same God we worship today. Those prophets of old, they had a voice that stood firm with the authority of God as they obediently served God's will, not their will, but God's will. Their voices rang with the message of God then and in the very nature of God, right, ever true, ever-present, never-changing. I believe their words are truth for us 
today if we will only listen and desire to grasp the understanding that the Lord wants to give us as we read their words. As we look at the name of Ezekiel, it would be um, good for us as we talk about names to consider what Ezekiel itself means. The name means the strength of God. How appropriate for a man who would serve God in and through such difficult circumstances, such a tumultuous time, serve with all his being to be called the strength of God. Let me give you a quick background to gain some perspective on where we are in Israel's history. We've looked at prophets. We've looked at Ezekiel briefly. Now, where are we in Israel, the people, the nation of God? Where are we in their history as we think of those words that Ezekiel shared? Now, God had promised his people a prosperous land. We know that Moses led them out of Egypt. And then following Moses um, would be Joshua, who would lead God's people into that promised land to overcome the current inhabitants, and provide the people with all they needed to live and to thrive under God's guidance and under God's authority, under God's grace, and under God's love. The land was divided between these 12 tribes, right? That nation that came originally from Abraham, a good and solid plan for success. It even included provisions for the priests and safe havens for those seeking asylum from things that had gone wrong in their own lives. So this land set aside for those 12 tribes, a people group joined by one common denominator, God, their God, together. But they would enjoy this life of prosperity for only a time. As is not uncommon for us today, right, at least in my own life, the people began to depend on that prosperity that they had rather than on their God, and this would lead them into trouble. So as I studied for this message, unfortunately, I found too many similarities between their journey and mine. I, too, have found my hope in my surroundings. I don't know if, that, if you can relate to that at all. I have found my hope in what makes me happy. I have found my hope in what my, my prospect is for the future, rather sometimes than in the one who provided it all. Bit of a heart check for me there. Soon these 12 tribes would begin to disagree with one another. Doesn't that happen in families, right? They'd begin to disagree with one another. And that land of prosperity and promise would begin a downward spiral. And the land would be divided. You would have the ten tribes in the northern kingdom, Israel, and then you would have two tribes in the southern kingdom, Judah, which also included the city of Jerusalem. Their history would continue to include warring with one another, And then at other times, they'd make alliances for their own benefit, right? Whatever would secure their plans, whatever would secure their own prosperity, whatever would secure their own happiness. And then I thought, a little side note here, how many have large family gatherings? Do you have warring and alliances sometimes? If you come to our house, we have those sometimes. The people's rebellious nature would have grave consequences for them. The northern kingdom would be the first to be scattered in judgment And just short of 150 years later, the southern kingdom, Judah, including the city of Jerusalem, would also fall in the hands of the Babylonians. And this is where our prophet Ezekiel comes in. This is where he enters the picture. Ezekiel is a contemporary of other prophets, too. One familiar name that you might know is Daniel. 
Now, Daniel would have been taken eight years earlier during the first siege of Jerusalem, and then, of course, Ezekiel would follow during the second siege. But Jerusalem, Judah was still there, yet to fall. God called Ezekiel in to begin to prophesy a few years in to his captivity. So now you see the setting. We have the people of God who were one tribe, one unified group, who separated themselves. And then through their own warring and their own desire for their own prosperity, not depending on their God, they would find themselves scattered. And like many prophets, Ezekiel warned God's people. He speaks on the state of their hearts. He speaks on the loss of their faithfulness. He speaks on on God's divine judgment that would come to be. God is loving and he is kind, but he is also righteous. Listen to Psalm 145, 17. It says, the Lord is righteous in all of his ways and kind in all of his works. I'm glad that he is all things together. Unlike me, he doesn't need to separate his uh, judgment from his kindness. He is one altogether. And so the people must answer for their actions, and Ezekiel knows this. I can only imagine the sorrow and the burden on Ezekiel's heart as he witnessed the downfall of Judah, as he was the one to bear that news. Ever felt that way yourself? You try again and again and again to warn someone, but you can't control their decisions. You see their downfall coming, but you cannot make them listen. Or maybe you yourself have been the one to be warned, the one to look the other way, the one to choose not to hear. I would be the first to raise my hand in both scenarios. I have been in both of those situations, and it's heartbreaking either way. But hang on, because there's hope. There is hope. That's why we worship our amazing, wonderful, righteous God. Particular to Ezekiel's prophecy is his attention on places, in particular the city of Jerusalem. Judgment would come against their beloved city. They saw Jerusalem as their place of worship. This was all to them, this city of Jerusalem, and it is where the temple of God resides. None are immune, all would be affected. Even God's dwelling place, the temple, would be affected. So Ezekiel warns them of the destruction to come to Jerusalem and eventually even to the temple itself. They depended on their prosperity rather than depending on their God long enough. And it would be their own undoing. God had offered them years, hundreds of years, for the people to change their ways. And there were times when they did, but in this case, I feel like sometimes we talk about taking three steps forward and only one step back, but we're making progress. Here, I feel like they took three steps back and only one step forward. And eventually, it would be their downfall. Eventually, they would suffer the consequences. But here's a very significant aspect of Ezekiel's prophecy and the final straw, if you will, for the people. Ezekiel's vision of the departure of God from the temple. In chapter 10, verse 18, it says, Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. God's divine judgment was taking shape, and now they would experience his divine abandonment. The warnings year after year had gone unheeded. So first, Ezekiel prophesies about the destruction of the city 
And then the profanity of the temple. And then as though nothing could get worse, he shares that vision of God leaving the temple. Now we know God is all-knowing, all-powerful, omnipresent, which means he is present everywhere all the time. And his presence is not limited by time or space or temple walls. God is creator after all. This is how it's described in Colossians 1.17. And he is before all things. And all things, and in him all things hold together, including time and space. But in the eyes of the people, the depiction of God leaving the temple was a reflection of God leaving them. Can you imagine? Leaving the nation, leaving them to their own consequences. Imagine the hopelessness. Where do I turn? Where do I turn if, if I feel, right, like I can't turn to my God? Now, for the believers here today in this room, watching online in the chapel, imagine believing God had truly left your side. Now, maybe you've been in that place. Maybe you're teetering in that place even now. But I urge you to hang on. I urge you to hang on because there is hope. There is more to this story, and there is more to your story. For the one still curious about faith here today, listen to God's word. Hear the story of his people. Allow him to speak to you. See the hope. See the redemption that he offers, that he offers to all who receive him. And there is more to come. Wherever you sit today, there is hope. The nation of Israel had been divided, and both Israel and Judah had taken care uh, not to listen to God's heeding. They depended on their own prosperity. But here's the scary part, I think. Judah had witnessed Israel's fall many years earlier. And yet they would continue in their own destructive ways and they would suffer the same consequences. I have to wonder, and I have to caution myself, did they become cold and immune to the warnings? Did they no longer see what was happening right in front of them? Could they no longer decipher right from wrong? I think it's a scary thought um, for all of us to remember. And the prophets give us such warnings to pay attention to in our own lives moving forward. Regardless, in the minds of the people, God's departure was certain to be their demise. But we know God does not turn back on his word. This isn't where the book of Ezekiel ends. That's only the first half. It also isn't where God's promises end, right? Because God redeems. He is our redeemer. He's our way maker, as we sang this morning. There is so much to this prophetic book, and I can't go into all the detail. Some of it is still a mystery, in fact, but even within some of the unknown, let me share with you what we do know. Ezekiel goes on to give his readers hope. All is not lost. He describes a time of restoration, and through the destruction and through the redemption, the people and their enemies will know without a doubt that God is Lord, and his name is Sovereign. In fact, throughout this book, God reminds the people again and again and again that he is Lord. He says it 72 times just between chapters 5 and 39. It becomes so obvious that the Lord considers it of utmost importance to me and to you and to the nations all over the world to know that he is Lord and that he holds divine authority. But do we believe it? 
Do we live our lives as though we believe it? Now, ironically, for the people in their exile and in their broken state, they would now begin to experience that deeper knowledge of God. It's only after all of this that they can now experience God's divine compassion. And I think, isn't it that way? Because it's when we are broken that we finally realize we must turn and we must rely on our true higher power. I see it all the time, that we must turn and we must rely on our true higher power, the only one who has the power to redeem, the only one who has the power to save. And Ezekiel promises that God will save Israel from her uncleanness by performing heart surgery, if you will. This is what he says in chapter 36, verses 25 and 26. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is a heart surgery that cannot be performed by man. We can't do it on our own, but it must be an act of God. It's a heart surgery that with God's spirit enables a new and transformed life to emerge. That is each and every one of us. We each have that opportunity for that transformed heart. It's true generations were lost at the people's own rebellion. But it is also true that generations yet to come would be saved through God's divine grace. Ezekiel ends the book with the hope of a restored promise, a restored people. So after years of rebellion, there would be years of consequences and even years of captivity. And only then, broken, would the people experience something new, a new type of dwelling with God, no longer confined in their own minds, right, to the temple, but one that would be within their own hearts. It brings to mind Paul's words to the Romans. This is chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So after all of that, had happened. A remnant would eventually return. And even further into the future, a savior would be born, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, the name above every name. He would grow into a man, and he would willingly take our place in death. He would take our punishment, and he would rise from the dead, and he would be our savior. So many names for God. And then in the end, Jesus, our Savior, will return. This is good news, right? This is good news. In his final words, Ezekiel returns to a vision. It isn't about the temple this time, however. It's about the beloved city of God. And in this vision, he describes the city in great detail. The walls that surround the city depict those 12 tribes of Israel, his people unified again under one true God. Ezekiel's words parallel the book of Revelation's description of a new Jerusalem. 
Now, this is where there are different schools of thought, different ideas surround the timing and fulfillment of these passages, but what do we know? Let's focus on what we know. It is certainly a prophecy for a new future, a new Jerusalem to come, but it is also a promise for us even here today. Ezekiel closes his book, very last words that he says in his book, by affirming that after all is said and done, the name of the city will be Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. No longer is the Lord only, at least in the minds of the people, confined to the walls of a temple. The most remarkable aspect of the new city of Jerusalem will be the presence of the Lord. Imagine it. Imagine it, a divine presence. God's glory had departed from the city as kind of a prelude to the city's judgment, and in the last words, he will return to signal Jerusalem's blessing. The personal presence of the Lord with his people stands as the goal of redemptive history. Amazing. This is good news. He will be there personally, visibly, face to face, in intimate fellowship with his people forever. Now, for the believer, the promise of God's eternal presence remains so precious in our lives. He promises the believers that he will never desert them. He will never desert us in this life today, now, through the power of the Holy Spirit that is within the heart of every believer, right? Right here and right now, he is with you. But he also promises that one day a new age will dawn in which we will enjoy personal fellowship with him forever. Good news. It brought hope to the people who had been held captive then, and it brings hope to us today. The Lord is present. The Lord is there. The Lord is here. Jehovah Shammah. In Romans 2.15, Paul echoes the promises when he teaches us that the law is written on our hearts. God is ever-present. In 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 17, he uses very familiar language for those Jewish people, a reminder that God is not confined by those walls, that we are his temple. Listen to what he says. He says, "Do do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. His spirit lives within us just as God promised. He he was with his people through their wanderings. He was with them through their destruction, and he did not neglect his promises, not once. Even in the midst of their consequences, in the midst of my consequences, he did not forget them. He did not forget them in their captivity in a foreign land. He did not leave them, and he will be with us face to face upon his return. It's good news. In the midst of the valleys and the mountains of our own life, of our own faith journeys, it is our hope. Paul uses the analogy of running and winning a race in his letter to the Philippians. I love this. I think it resonated with his readers then, and it works for us today. But I'm going to ask you to look at it a little bit differently today. In this instance, I'm going to ask you to think of the race this way. Imagine God running ahead of you. 
Imagine him running before you, preparing the way for every step that you will take, preparing the way for every new challenge that you will face, preparing the way for every celebration and even every sorrow that you will face. You are not alone on this journey, for God is there with you. Listen to the words of another prophet, Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love, and he will exalt over you with loud singing. You know, if you are at rest today in the midst of God's peace, then praise him. Continue to follow him with all that you have because he will be the one to sustain you. If you are in the midst of struggle, fears, addictions, anxiousness, he is there and he has a rescue story for you. If you feel you are wandering, you are unsure of your next step, he is there. He has known your questions and he has held the answers all along. Just listen for his voice. Be guided in his direction. Find hope in God's word through Ezekiel's words, Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. I asked Elijah if we could close um, with a, a song called The Simple Gospel. Maybe you're familiar with it. I found the words to this song ring so true for me. So I want to share a few of the lyrics with you and maybe they will ring true for you as well. It says, I want to know you, Lord. Like I know a friend, I want to know you, Lord. As he knows us by name, may we open our hearts and our minds to know him. It goes on to say, so I'm laying down all of my religion. Because it's not about following all of the rules perfectly, is it? It's about the transformation of the heart to know the Lord. It is he who works within us and guides and directs us. I want to know you, Lord. Goes on to say, I used to think that I could box you in, but I'm laying down, not my plans, Lord, but your plans. Not my prosperity, Lord, but relying completely on you. Lord, I've been told to be ashamed. Lord, I've been told I don't measure up. Lord, I've been told I'm not good enough, but you're here with me. And I reach out to you and you find me in the dust. And you say, no amount of untruths can separate us. Jehovah Shammah, God is there. God is present with you this morning. So rejoice in the simple gospel. Rejoice in our Lord. In the end, the simple gospel is Jesus Christ, the name above every name, right where we started this morning. The name to which every knee will bow the name who saves. I'm going to ask you to consider these truths as we worship him together and close in song this morning. First, would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much that you are there. You are present. You spoke through the prophet Ezekiel to give the people hope. And you give us hope today, Lord, that we can move on and forward with your plan and your purpose because you are there guiding us and strengthening us and transforming us into the people that you called us to be. Your people, your nation, Lord. 
So Lord, if there is someone here who does not yet know you, I pray that their hearts would be open to listen to your voice even this morning. Lord, that your nudge, your spirit would work within them, Lord, and they would begin that amazing, wonderful relationship with you, that they would say yes to you, Lord. And for those here in the midst of uncertainty, not sure where their next step is, maybe in the midst of struggle, uh, addiction, anxiety, whatever it is that desires to oppress us, Lord, you are strong enough. Your Holy Spirit can overpower. Lord, you are greater than any other. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. And it is always um, with a heart of love and gratitude um, that we lift our lives, our purpose, and our plan up to you, Lord. And we rely on you, and we pray, Lord, that it would honor you in Jesus' name.